All right. Hey, good morning. <laughs> now that you can hear me. Uh, Isaiah chapter 9, as I was saying, is where we will be this morning. So if you'll turn there with me or direct your attention up here, they're going to have it for you. Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. So we've been reading through the Bible together and preaching through the texts as we go. And today we come to Isaiah and a proper Advent text, which is lovely. Um, and as you know, if you've been coming to this church for a long time, or maybe this is your first time, I don't, let me just explain what Advent is. Advent is the time in our church calendar. It's a, it's a whole season of four weeks, four Sundays, where we clothe ourselves intentionally with the garments of longing and anticipation of the arrival of Christ. Now, we focus partially on the first arrival of Christ in Bethlehem thousands of years ago, but we focus more fully on the promised second arrival of Christ. When that day will come, none of us knows. Jesus didn't tell us the day, the time that he would arrive. He only told us, be ready, stay awake, because it will surely come. And so this season is a time when we remind ourselves year after year to be ready, to stay awake. We shake ourselves awake to the realities of the promised arrival of Jesus Christ. And that is what our text leads us into today, a longing for the arrival of Christ. And I have good news. I'm going to get political in this sermon today. Yes. <laughs> <It's> a, but <laughs> I mean, okay, in our nation... I mean, let's just be honest. In our nation, it seems like politics has been the only thing we've been capable of talking about this year. And I don't think that I'm telling you anything new uh, when I say that the casual, to the casual observer, the fight between Trumpism and Bidenism and all the ideologies that undergird that debate has not only divided our nation, but I'm sad to say has in many ways divided the church as well. And so we're going to get political today. But I hope you trust me that I wouldn't do that unless the text demanded it. And I think that it does. 
So in order to get at this teaching, let's look at it under three headings. Number one, we're going to look at the condition of the people. Number two, we're going to look at the promise to the people. And then number three, we're going to look at the fulfillment of that promise. So very easy. The condition of the people, the promise to the people to alleviate the condition, and then the fulfillment of that promise. So let's begin with the condition of the people. Now, the passage that we just read from Isaiah chapter 9 is a passage about the hope of deliverance. And it's easy to focus our eyes on the deliverance part of it, the hope piece of it. But it also tells us exactly what condition the people of God were in that required deliverance. And I'll just tick them off right real quick. Uh, in verse 2, it says that the people walked in darkness, that they dwell in a land of deep darkness. Verse 4 says that they are somehow under the rod of their oppressor. And then in verse 5, it says that their oppression was achieved under the tramping boots of warriors. So what's going on here? Well, if you take the larger context, going back to chapter 7 of Isaiah, we see that the king of Judah, a guy named Ahaz at this point, he's in a serious bind. The Assyrians are allying themselves with other nations in order to come in and destroy both Israel and Judah. Israel is divided into two kingdoms at this point. So Israel and Judah, and then the king of Israel is calling out to Ahaz, to form an alliance in order to stand up to this threat of invasion. But Ahaz is resisting it. Ahaz doesn't want to fight. He does his best to pay off and assuage the Assyrians, but the Assyrians are bearing down on them nonetheless. They're not going to be assuaged. And so the Lord can see that Ahaz is terrified of this prospect, rightly so. And then in the Lord's kindness, he sends Isaiah, the prophet, to speak to King Ahaz. And just listen to this magnificent promise that the Lord makes to Ahaz in chapter 7, starting in verse 7. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand. The it is the invasion that he's so afraid of. It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people, and the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. So the Lord Almighty promises that the destruction of Judah would not happen provided that Ahaz is firm in his faith that it is the Lord who will bring them deliverance. Okay, follow so far? We're good? All right. If you are not firm in your faith, he says, you will not be firm at all. The Lord says, listen, Ahaz, it doesn't matter what kind of alliances you make. It doesn't matter how many soldiers you call up. It doesn't matter how far the scales of victory are tipped in the Assyrians' favor. None of those are a suitable object for your faith and confidence in your deliverance. Believe in me, says the Lord. I shall deliver you. If you are not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. And the Lord condescends even further to Ahaz and his weak faith and he says to him Ahaz ask me for a sign that this will be true 
ask me for a sign. Anything you want, as high as the heaven or as deep as Sheol, ask me for anything and I will show it to you as confirmation that I shall fight for you. Like, and Ahaz unbelievably says, no, I don't, I don't want a sign. I will not choose to believe that the Lord will deliver. I will continue to lean on the broken staff of my own machinations in order to work out our salvation. Like, can you imagine? Ask for anything. You want it written in the stars? You want the sun to go backwards? Like anything. And he says, no. I'm going to work it out. And so, through Isaiah, in response to Ahaz and his lack of faith, the Lord says, fine. I will provide my own sign. And the sign is this, a son shall be born and his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Now, we've often read that verse, we jump straight to Jesus Christ, and to be fair, Matthew, writer of the gospel, taught us to do that because he applies this verse to the birth of Jesus. But here's where I tell you that that interpretation is patently not what Isaiah thought and it's patently not what his audience would have understood it as either. Let me prove it to you. Um, let's just look at what happens at the time that this son is born. This is in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 15. He shall eat curds and honey. This is Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. So, so all of those events that I just read, those, have ha those happened before Jesus. The son shall be born in the days when Assyria comes in to conquer the land. And we know that that happened many centuries before he was born. Now, we don't know who that son was. We don't know who the son Emmanuel was of Isaiah chapter 7. We're never told. There's speculation. But all we know is that his birth was going to be a sign. When the Assyrians come in to conquer your land, cart you off into exile, destroy your fields, then a son will be born and his birth will be the sign that God is with us. But listen carefully. God is with us, not for the sake of hope, for the sake of judgment. That's what Isaiah is telling them. Ahaz, you rejected me. I would have fought for you. So I'm bringing a sign. And when you see the son born, when you see Emmanuel come, you will know that your judgment has arrived. Now again, Matthew appropriates this promise to refer to Jesus, and that's a beautiful thing, and we'll get to that um, a little bit later. But this is the condition of the people. They walk in the darkness of judgment. Their land and their homes have been destroyed by the boots 
of the tramping warrior, and now they sit on the banks of the Euphrates River, weeping their eyes out in exile, and all because their failure of faith. The Lord said to Ahaz, and through him to the rest of the people, if you are not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. And into that condition of utter darkness, God delivers a promise to them. So let's move to the promise to the people. These people who have walked in darkness, back to chapter 9. These people who have walked in darkness, Isaiah tells us, have seen a great light. On them, a light has shone. Joy is creeping into their sorrow and dawn is breaking in upon the dark night of their suffering. And what does that hope look like? Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. Now, Nearly every scholar that I've read uh, commenting on this chapter is convinced that the son of chapter 9 is not the same as the son of chapter 7. Emmanuel, chapter 7, comes to show the people that God is with them for judgment, but this son of chapter 9 comes to rectify every injustice and is the object of their hope. And notice that the son is given. The light that breaks in upon the people at his arrival will come as a gift, not something that they earned, not something that they worked in order to achieve, but because it was a gift. And when he comes, Isaiah teaches us that his names will tell us what is his vocation. Verse 6, the end of it, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The son who sits on David's throne, his name will be Wonderful Counselor. All of his counsel will align perfectly with the will of God. He will never lead them astray like Ahaz did. His name shall be Mighty God. The son will be so deeply identified with God that it will be impossible to know where he begins, the son, and the father ends. Like, they, they will be one. He will bear the divine character, and his might will be the might of God. His name shall be everlasting Father. The Son shall be eternal. In some mysterious way, he will never have begun, never have ended. His name shall be Prince of Peace. In his own body, he will bring peace to bear on the world. Shalom, complete well-being, utter flourishing in this son. He will bring peace to his people by offering himself because he himself is their peace. The vocation of this son is almost too astonishing to grasp. And all of this light that he brings will be a gift to us. A son is given. But there's more. Not only shall the son bring peace in the character of Almighty God, but he shall do it, listen to this, he shall bring that peace through a very specific means. 
I don't know if you caught it as I read it, but listen, starting in verse 6. The government shall be on his shoulder. Let's skip to verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The promised son who comes to make light break in upon the people who dwell in darkness also comes with a government on his shoulder. The purpose of this mysterious figure is to establish a new order for things. And perhaps you've never thought about like this well-trod passage that we often read during Advent. Like maybe you've never thought of this in terms of politics before, but it is deeply political. The sun comes to establish a government and that government shall increase until it fills the entire world and the character of that government is defined by justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So this promise imposes the rubric of hope upon his people. The world in which they lived was covered in darkness, but the promise meant that the first bands of light were creeping in over the cold horizon. The son of David would not be like Ahaz. The son of David would not be like Solomon or Rehoboam or any of the other crooked and failing kings of the Jews. This king would reverse injustice, speak truth to the people, conquer all of their foes and lead them into life everlasting. And how would he do it? Through a government. But year after year, decade after decade, the sun had not appeared yet. The people lived their lives in darkness, generation to generation, and they longed for the coming of this king and this government until one day in Bethlehem, many centuries later, the promise was kept. So let's look at the fulfillment of the promise. You know the story. A virgin gives birth to a son. And Joseph, her betrothed, decides he's going to leave. But an angel intervenes and reveals the mystery of her pregnancy to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, starting in verse 20. But as he, Joseph, considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The son whose name shall be Emmanuel, whom Isaiah prophesied in chapter 7, has now arrived. Now, to be sure, another son was given in Isaiah's lifetime who fulfilled his original promise, but here we see that that former Emmanuel was only a shadow of the true Emmanuel who would come. And in this Emmanuel, God is with us. In the beginning, 
God was with Adam in the garden. In the wilderness, God was with his people in the tabernacle. In the time of the kingdom, God was with his people in the temple. And at this moment, God came to be with his people in the person of his son. God is with us. And that is an occasion for rejoicing. But we can't forget then in Isaiah's day, Emmanuel, God with us, was a sign among the people of their judgment. And that is no less true in the person of God's son, but we'll get back to that in a minute. Just put that in your pocket, we'll come back. The birth of Christ was not only the fulfillment of the son in chapter 7 of Isaiah, the birth of Christ was also the fulfillment of the Son in Isaiah 9. In his magisterial introduction to his gospel, John says this in John 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him not anything was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it in Jesus Christ himself the promised son who becomes the light that breaks in upon the darkness of our despair and and the brightness of his glory is so potent that no darkness could ever overcome it. That's what John is teaching us here. But the fulfillment goes even farther. Isaiah taught us that the promised son would arrive with a government on his shoulder. And do you know what the first recorded teaching from Jesus ever to, be, ever to proceed from his mouth was? The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom has arrived. Jesus Christ didn't only come to bring light, although he certainly did. Jesus Christ didn't only come to bring life, although he certainly did. Jesus Christ didn't only come to teach us and to heal us and to right the wrongs of injustice, although he certainly did. Jesus Christ came to establish a government, and that government is called the kingdom of God. The Son has arrived, yes. The Savior has arrived, yes, but that Son and that Savior is a king. Maybe you've never noticed it before, but if you study the teachings of Jesus, you'll find that the theme that he spoke most about is the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ came with a government on his shoulder. And we can't miss this during Advent, especially Advent in 2020. We have carried the oppressive baggage of 2020 politics right into this season. Now, politics, by definition, just means the activities that are associated with the governance of a nation. That's all it is. Activities that are associated with the governance of a nation. And this political season has left our nation and in, and in many ways our church, I mean, 
the church universal, at least the church American, in ruin. Somehow, the activities that are associated with the governance of a nation seeped into the cracks that maybe were already present among us and in many cases led to full-on division. And here, let's just let's leave the outside world to themselves for a minute. Let's just, let's just address our own family as the church of Christ. We've become bitterly divided over whether we should wear masks protect each other or whether masks are just government control. We become bitterly divided over whether racism is a personal choice or a systemic malady. We become bitterly divided over whether our presidential election was stolen or whether it was legitimate. And these convictions have left us suspicious of one another. Formerly, we were brothers and sisters in Christ, saw each other in this way, but in the crucible of this very difficult year, we begin to wonder if our fellow Christians who disagree with us on these issues and others can even be Christians at all. And brothers and sisters, make no mistake, <laughs> that is what it feels like to walk in darkness. Now, don't misinterpret me. I'm not saying that these issues are of no importance. These issues are of extreme importance, and we wouldn't be divided over trifling issues. As citizens of this magnificent country, we must reckon with the best way to protect each other from a pandemic. As citizens, we must understand racism and work tirelessly to root it out. As citizens of this country, we must have honest and just elections. In that way, politics is a fitting way to seek after justice. But in the midst of that, we can never forget the words of our Lord. The kingdom of God is among you. We can never forget that the light has shined in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And furthermore, we can never forget that when Christ established his kingdom, he established a politics all of his own. Remember, politics just refers to the activities associated with the governance of a nation. And how does Christ govern his people? The politics of the kingdom of God are defined by loving kindness. The politics of the kingdom of God is defined by humility. The politics of the kingdom of God is defined by healing and restoration. But most of all, the politics of the kingdom of God, listen, is defined by sacrifice. When the promised son wanted to show his people and the world the sine qua non of his political achievement. He didn't take to Twitter. He didn't take to Facebook just to spout off about it. Instead, he stood before his political enemies in, by the I said Twitter. I'm not making any comments. I'm not, just, lots of people use Twitter. I'm not trying to make a comment there. It just occurred to me that, okay. Instead, he stood before his political enemies in silence as a lamb goes to the slaughter. He offered his back to the lash 
and receive the condemnation of their judgment. He carried his own instrument of execution to the place of the skull, and there he laid himself upon it and did not struggle against them as they nailed his body in place. And when the Roman guards raised that cross off of the earth, they left Emmanuel hanging to die. And what we witnessed in that moment is not the defeat of kingdom politics, but the crowning moment of kingdom politics. The manner in which our king handled the affairs of his kingdom was through sacrifice. And remember, when Isaiah prophesied that Emmanuel would come, it was a promise that indicated that when he arrived, judgment had come. And in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we see that promise fulfilled. The cross was an instrument of judgment. There, God diverted the just wrath for your sins and for mine that we had earned for ourselves into the body of his son. And in his blood, we have been forgiven for our sins. And three days later, Christ rose from the dead, never to die again. And from there, he ascended to the right hand of his father, where he rules his kingdom and administers his government from on high. And now, brothers and sisters, he has given us of his spirit and administers the politics of his kingdom through us. We are now the bearers of loving kindness. We are now the seekers and the doers of justice. We are now the light that shines into the darkness. We are now the ones who must sacrifice ourselves in order that the politics of the kingdom are upheld. Do you know what that requires? It requires faith. If you are not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. We deal with very important issues through the politics of this world, yes, but we must never, ever forget that our allegiance is to a higher set of politics, namely the politics of the kingdom of God. And the politics of the kingdom of God is not defined by the Democratic platform. It is not defined by the Republican platform. It is not defined by any other party. It supersedes all of these and is more glorious than any of them. And this Advent, let us rejoice in the first coming of the king and learn to long for the second coming of the king because in that second coming, the glory of his light will be so magnificent that it will swallow the darkness world without end. We must believe that and we must believe in his promise that when he comes, the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end to that. And we come to the table of Christ and one of the most potent possessions of any political movement is its symbols. These symbols say more than 10,000 words ever could. We have bread. We have a cup. These symbols tell us about the sacrifice of Christ and the forgiveness of our sins and the incredible love that was required for Christ to have communion with us. 
It's a table that reminds us what we're all about. It's a, it's a unifying table. All of us come to it in the exact same condition. All of us are forgiven by the same grace. And so as we eat and drink, let us rejoice in the kingdom of God and the king who has promised to return and usher us into that kingdom in the last day. So, come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Let us pray, and then you may eat and drink. Our Father in heaven,